Hi, I'm Paul Shari, Senior Fellow here at the Center for New American Security, with another edition of our podcast series on drones. Today, we're going to talk about drone transparency. Uh, what can the Trump administration do to build on Obama administration initiatives to increase transparency about U.S. use of drones? I'm joined by Luke Hartig, Executive Director of the Network Science Initiative at the National Journal and Fellow at the International International Security Program at New America Foundation, and Lauren Young Shulman, a senior fellow here at CNAS. Thanks, Luke, Lauren, for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Both of you really had worked in the Obama administration in various aspects of drone policy. Let's maybe start with what were the initiatives that the Obama administration took to increase transparency in uh, over the course of that administration? So I'll let Luke get into the specific initiatives because he was much more involved in that. Uh, but uh, throughout my career, at, both at the Department of Defense and the National Security Council, you know, drones were fairly dominant even when it was not my portfolio, but th- both in terms of the how will we export them and sell them to foreign partners? Um, are they the sort of magical response to anything on the planet that we need surveillance or a strike on in some way? They were really the capability that was discussed the most within the NSC and also in public, but at the same time, they were, I think, probably least well understood by Congress, uh, by the general public, as well as by some of our partners, which is why I think a lot of the stuff that Luke worked on was really important. Yeah, so I'll just say at the outset that I approached uh, drones from having the experience in the counterterrorism community, which means... I was mostly thinking about them as an enabler of special operations or as platforms for taking strikes against uh, terrorist groups. And I think for that latter point, the, the, what the, in the community is called direct action against terrorists, um, it's helpful to kind of think about where we started at the beginning of the Obama administration and where we ended. And at the beginning of the administration, there were pretty widespread news accounts of drone strikes in various places in the world, uh, but no real government acknowledgement of it. And if you read the reports from some of the outside groups that were studying drone strikes, uh, a perception that they were not particularly precise or accurate in terms of removing um, removing their intended target uh, without harming uh, civilians at any significant number. And that began to change throughout uh, President Obama's first term, uh, most notably by a series of speeches that his senior advisors gave. And this was on both the policy side and the legal side. And I think what you saw in the first term was um, a desire to try to be more transparent about, one, at least the fact that we were taking these actions, um, and two, what we believed was the legal and policy framework for doing that and how that was consistent with both domestic law and international law. Certainly a lot of disagreement about that, but uh, but at least the case was made um, through that. Um, in 2011 was the first time that we had ever acknowledged specific countries where we were taking drone strikes, and in a war powers declaration, uh, we acknowledged uh, drone strikes being taken in Yemen and Somalia, which was is pretty significant. But I think that the the view uh, and the perception that drone strikes were still causing significant uh, civilian casualties um, led President Obama to um, undertake a series of efforts to try to rein in the program and make sure that it was on very firm legal and policy footing that we could explain more broadly. And so this kind of culminated in, in the, the 2013 speech he gave at the National Defense University in which he offered a very a strong defense of his record on drones, but also announced a series of reforms to further improve uh, the approach that we took on this. Um, and his second term really is kind of a continuation of the the beginning of transparency that he laid down in, in 2013. And so you have things like in 
2014, we began to acknowledge specific strikes in Somalia, which we'd never done before, most notably the removal of uh, Godane, who was the head of al-Shabaab. Uh, in 2015, uh, there were additional disclosures in that case, um, very unfortunately, around the death of Warren Weinstein, a U.S. citizen who was killed in uh, direct action uh, by the U.S. government. And, and we disclosed more details about that action than we had about previous actions. Um, going into 2016 was probably the banner year of President Obama's final year in office. And there were a number of disclosures uh, made that year, um, particularly around specific strikes being conducted in Yemen and Libya. Uh, there were aggregate statistics that were released, which was probably one of the bigger things that the administration did, which was to say these are the, this is the U.S. government's assessment of the number of strikes and the number of combatants and non-combatants killed from 2009 to 2015 across all theaters. Uh, they released the presidential policy guidance on direct actions, so sort of the main framework that the president had approved for, uh, for taking these actions. Um, and then there was a notable document that was released in kind of the waning days of the Obama administration that didn't get a ton of attention, but is actually a really fascinating document, which is a, a comprehensive legal and policy framework for all of our counterterrorism actions. And it laid out in pretty painstaking detail um, the series of legal and policy conclusions that were reached and, and that formed the framework for, uh, for thinking about direct action uh, in that administration. So... Uh, if I want to, I want to talk a little bit about what was going on in parallel to this, to all the policy discussion that Luke just laid out, because at the same time as first the Obama or Bush administration and the Obama administration were developing their drone policy that evolved, uh, we had a really sort of fascinating dynamic in terms of how the American people were thinking about transparency and accountability in the use of force, in the sense that since 2001, there has been no congressional debates or sorry, new congressional authorization for use of force for any of the actions that have taken place worldwide uh, since September 11th. The AUMF has covered basically Iraq, Afghanistan, a lot of the CT war with various um, sort of congressional hints at favor, you know, whether they favored it, the fact that they continued to fund it. So, but there was not a debate in the sense that, uh, you know, our founders might have thought of it when giving the Congress the ability to declare war. So the American people aren't used to thinking about should the U.S. government be really transparent or should they be really accountable for um, a lot of their use of force activities. And that becomes even more fascinating when you think about this is you know, a fairly new, or at least not necessarily new, but it's much larger for the um, for the CIA to be undertaking some of these activities beyond the, with the traditional Department of Defense. So while I think that, you know, there are a lot of activists very rightly pointed out that transparency and accountability were really important facets to um, you know, strengthen for our drone policy, the American people haven't necessarily been clamoring for it. And in a lot of ways, that's because they are, they're used to a dynamic where the administration has a lot of power and the ability to execute war. So why does transparency matter? Well, I think there's a few reasons, but 
I think the biggest thing is that it's absolutely important for um, for both the domestic constituency as well as the country where we're taking these actions to understand, you know, for, for a domestic audience, for a U.S. audience, on what basis the government believes it ought to carry out force on behalf of its people. And in a country that is, uh, you know, where the strikes are actually taking place, it's important for for the, the, the populations around where the strikes are taking place uh, to understand why um, uh, the action is being taken uh, and to be able to judge for themselves whether uh, those actions are discriminant and precise and whether they're in keeping with what they would expect of the elected officials in their own uh, country. So at a most basic level, I, I, I think it's that. I think that's exactly right. I, w- I would add that you know, it's part of really the bargain that I feel that was struck by giving you know, Congress the ability to declare war and the president the ability to be the commander-in-chief, uh, to be able to have some sort of like basically public negotiation about what it means to use violence on behalf of the American people and what sort of risks are being mitigated and what sort of risks are being um, you know, increased by the very nature of armed conflict overseas, whether it be by the CIA or the Department of Defense. And one of the things that I find interesting about transparency in the case of the, the drones issue is that because they're unmanned, you are sort of minimizing the debate about risk to U.S. assets and personnel. And, and that's actually really helpful in so many ways. But you're not, as a result, perhaps addressing as much about the risk of what else happens. Um, is there a greater risk to U.S. interests? Is there a risk to the local population? Is there a risk to U.S. relationships overseas? So some of the risk debates that might naturally happen around a traditional U.S. military conflict where DOD is being engaging in Iraq or Afghanistan or elsewhere don't necessarily happen in the same way when we're talking about drones because it's such a different set of players. And that's in some ways neither good nor bad. A lot of the debate is actually increased, I think, in use of drones. Like they're more transparent inside governments, but they're less transparent outside of governments uh, in a lot of ways that I think really matter to the American people, whether they quite realize it or not. Can I add one thing to this? I think another important thing to consider is that transparency allows you um, a a means to evaluate the actions against what has been established as sort of the rules of of the campaign. And in the case of of drone strikes that we're talking about, I think in this context, which we, you know, in government, the term was, you know, outside areas of active hostilities. That's to say places like Yemen and Somalia, where the United States is not in a a full-scale state of war. The, the the important thing, I think, for the Obama administration was to say that in these places where we don't have, you know, we're not in a full-scale war, we ought to be bound by certain higher-level principles. Mm-hmm. And the principles that were articulated in uh, in that administration and in uh, President Obama's guidance on this was that lethal action only be taken when there is a continuing imminent threat to U.S. persons. So pretty high standard, right? Um, that it only be taken when there is no option for capture or not a feasible option for capture. So you can debate what goes into feasibility, but uh, but that you should the first preference should be for capture, and that before you take an, a, a strike, um, the the relevant commander can assess with near certainty that civilians will not be harmed. Mm-hmm. So they're they're not terribly complex set of principles. I mean, there's only a couple of them, but they they are very high standards. And I think I think it was important to be able to assess whether we were actually meeting that bar because of some of the limitations on transparency. And I'm sure we'll get into those. Um, soon.
alone, uh, it is hard to assess whether the United States government, from an outside perspective, not having the perspective that we've had of being inside government, uh, to fully assess that that uh, that the government was meeting those standards. So. You know, you've each talked about the kind of reality of what the U.S. government's doing, but then, at least very early on, to the perception about what was happening. So as the Obama administration sort of took these measures to increase transparency, have we seen the perception shift? How has the sort of perception about the, what, is, what the United States is doing changed as a result? So uh, I'll take that in two ways. One, having been in the Obama White House from 2013 to 2016, so sort of three of his final four years in office that the 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 focus at that time and the and sort of the the incoming i guess that we're receiving the 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 comments that we're receiving from the press the meetings that we had with human rights groups and the such there was a, a a strong acknowledgement that the transparency was helpful that it was helpful to be able to articulate these standards um and that the administration was making uh steady steps toward greater transparency um but I think we, where we really fell down and where the, the, the shortcomings remain and where the criticism really um, focused, at least toward the end, was that the United States government has, has never gotten around to or has never been able to um, uh, fully explain each of its strikes taken over the course. So in other words, let me t- t- take that a different way. Uh, the U.S. government is, has has uh, has only disclosed bits and pieces of the specific strikes that were taken. So from 2014 onward, there's a uh, strike-by-strike account of the strikes that took place in Somalia. That's really helpful to be able to assess in that context what it looked like. 2016 onward, there's that same kind of accounting in Yemen. Anything before 2014 and anything um, you know beyond the 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 the, the with the disclosures that have already taken place, there's no way of assessing it. So you know the U.S. government has released that there were you know hundreds of strikes um, taken from 2009 to 2015, uh, but doesn't actually acknowledge where those took place, um, the specific cases where uh, our assessments of civilian casualties might have differed from those of outside groups, whether media uh, or human rights groups uh, or the such. Uh, and even in the aggregate statistics released at the end of the administration, there's a, in, in early 2017, that in the waning days of the Obama administration, they released uh, the numbers from the previous year. It's still aggregated across all theaters, and there's no way to be able to, to really distinguish um, where those, those differences might have lied between the U.S. government's accounts and those of outside groups. To me, Paul, your question comes back to one of the terms that Luke spoke out a a moment ago, uh, and I'm not a lawyer, nor was I a a CT person, but the uh, the continuing imminent threats to the American people. Um, To me, it's really would be very helpful in the future to give the American people a better understanding of what that actually means. And, but which I don't mean like, what is the technical legal definition, but to go back to, you know, the drone strikes taken by the United States over this very long time period, what, to give them a better sense of like, what was the specific threat? How was it mitigated? And what were the sort of knock-on effects that may have happened either within that community or within that terrorist network? Uh, not to say that, you know, those strikes weren't worth it. Maybe Maybe in many cases, probably 90% of the cases, they were. But to me, transparency and accountability have to be linked ultimately to the American people having a good sense of what kind of risks and costs are being taken in their name. Uh, Not that they will necessarily decide to change their mind about it, but at the end of the day, they're sort of the ones who will be kind of held to the accounting of how did this work 
in practice over these last two decades. Um, and I think maybe not necessarily immediately, but over the long term, they, they really merit having a more broader public debate about that. That's really a broader intelligence community issue where the intelligence community, I think, um, believes that we should rely on them to you know keep the secrets of the United States and keep uh, they, they should be the trusted arbiters of analysis. And we absolutely do have to trust them for that. But over the long term, I think it'd be much more useful to have a more transparent conversation with the American people about here's what we really meant by the al-Qaeda threat. Here's what the the true Russian threat to U.S. forces is in the Baltics. Because um, the extent that we keep that secret, whether or not we're intending to, it becomes, there's a perception of we must be doing something wrong behind the curtain. Or the ability for people who would oppose us to say that you are doing something wrong without us having the ability to defend ourselves practically. Yeah, let me pick up on a point there. Um, I think there's a couple of things that jump out at me in this Lord's uh, comment here. Um, one is that, you know, in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, I think we found out very early that we could disclose basic details about every strike mm-hmm. and every major operation and the sky wouldn't fall. That, that you could you could do that and it would be helpful, at least, in um, explaining where our assessments differed from those of other groups. And I think CENTCOM um, ultimately came to, like, I don't want to say quite value, but see the necessity and the use utility in, in doing so. Yeah, they. I think I absolutely agree with that and still do for Iraq and Syria operations. And that's continued in the Trump administration, which I think is an important point. I think particularly among military professionals, particularly among the folks who've been on the ground and have to go out into the communities where we've just taken action, being as transparent as possible is something that they've come to value as a, um, a strategic asset, not just a, an important piece of maintaining the kind of the contract with the American people people. So I think that was, I think that was uh, pretty important. Um, there will, even if we could achieve the level of transparency we've had in Iraq and Afghanistan in terms of being able to account for every strike outside of those theaters, so you know, places like Yemen and Somalia, we will still inevitably fall short from what um, the greatest credit or greatest, I guess, proponents of transparency would seek. So we're never going to be able to fully explain how we knew that a target was there, why we took the shot, if there were civilian casualties, to be able to fully explain the, the you know, the, the specific tactics and procedures that led to that outcome. Um, and so there will always be some some gap there. But you know, we're a long ways from being able to debate that. It's kind of a, a high class problem, as some of my colleagues used to say. But I think, you know, to me, what, what you guys have highlighted is that there's, you know, explaining the specifics of the intelligence in this particular case. But then there's this broader issue, Lauren, that you mentioned, which is explaining to the American public sort of the process that this works in general, mm-hmm. right? And we've outlined kind of what the legal and policy frameworks are, although I'm not sure how much that's really filtered down in any um, intelligible way to sort of the average public. But I worry that you know, so the average American citizen's view about the intelligence process, that their concept has much more to do with, you know, 24 and Jack Bauer in terms of thinking about what an imminent threat is, right? Or we're thinking about civilian casualties. It's coming from things like, you know, the the Eye in the Sky movie, worrying about drone strikes. And I guess I have the sense that those are not necessarily accurate representations of what's happening in practice, right? Right. 
Uh, and I think that's true uh, with a lot of issues related to drones. Like, actually, very few uses of drones, as you guys know far better than I, are actually related to strikes. It's much more related right. to surveillance right. and ISR in theaters that have nothing to do with counterterrorism. Um, but in some ways, that means that I think people perceive that counterterrorism strikes are far more prevalent and far more um, uh, violent than they actually are. Uh, but in other ways, that means that they're not necessarily thinking through, so what does that mean and where are they being executed? I had another thought, but it went away. No, <laughs> <laughs> um, you no, know, I think that that understanding is it's a it's a tricky piece, right? Because you want people to understand the nature of targeting and why it's so difficult, uh, but at the same time, you know, obviously, want to don't give away the secrets that um, that allow that targeting to take place. But you're right. I mean, the terms like continuing imminent threat. What does that mean? I mean, certainly, you think imminent threat. You think Jack Bauer, 24, as you said. When you read Attorney General Holder's uh, comments on that. Uh, he defines uh, imminence pretty broad, and there's you know three different tests, and one of them is kind of the relevant window to act. And you start to look at that and say, well, those have very practical reasons that that is the way that military operations must assess a concept like imminence. Um, but it doesn't sound like kind of the dictionary definition of imminence. And you know, I, I think as much as it, it can seem dry, there is still the, the the legal and policy conversation about what these specific terms mean. Is still very important, and um, uh, because it's a it's a useful kind of um, uh, I guess ruler for other administrations and other legal and policy experts to assess how far we've gone and what are the appropriate rules. And so, even though those are hard things that are in terms of translating those to the American people, they're really essential if we ever want you know the U.S. approach to drone warfare to be um, uh, the basis for an international standard. And I think we're far from that right now, um, but uh, but. The the, the, certainly that articulation, that wrangling over those terms and being as transparent about it as possible is critical to that discussion. Well, I think that's a great uh, time to kind of pivot to thinking about the example the U.S. has been setting for other countries, because we're now seeing other countries getting access to more capable drones, including armed drones. Uh, the U.S. has been very reluctant to transfer armed drones abroad, only transferring them to the United Kingdom and approving transfers to Italy, but they haven't gone through yet. But we've seen China um, has, has not been so reluctant, and in fact, 90% of international armed drone transfers come from China. So... You know, how are other countries looking at what the U.S. has been doing and the sort of precedent the United States has been setting in terms of action and then transparency, and how are we seeing that inform uh, their behavior? I mean, really, Paul, you would probably be the better person to talk about some of that. Um, my perception is um, actually like a, a lot of uh, arms control and related debates. Uh, other countries like to put a lot of pressure on the United States to have extremely high standards, to be quite transparent, and to uh, be, be cautious in our use of uh, a lot of different kinds of weapons platforms. Uh, at the same time, they um, maybe behind the table, or sorry, behind the curtain, are appreciative of some of these standards or lack thereof that we set, such that they may be able to take advantage of themselves, or that uh, they may be able to sort of you know, ride on our coattails in terms of how we're applying them. Uh, I don't have the greatest sense of how uh, armed drones are being necessarily employed or talked about being employed in other countries, but I think that the public debates 
on drones and the fact that they are, I think, widely perceived as a low-cost, low-risk, um, possibly, depending on your view, either very low civil casualties or very high civil casualties sort of option, makes this a difficult conversation to have in the kind of communities that should be having it. Um, if I, I would often think that it would be a lot easier to talk about drones if drones cost a lot more, if they were incredibly expensive or they were really hard to fly or they were much more difficult to employ because then you could think about the actual effects that they were having as opposed to these are really easy so we'll go use them in a bunch of different theaters without really thinking about it because they're so relatively low cost and relatively easy to employ and uh, relatively easy to build we're not being forced to have those uh, conversations in the same way you might about like different level but nuclear weapons or very high-end tactical aircraft or anything like that yeah, that's a good point. Um, I think there are a couple of things that jump out for me on this. Uh, one, that you know, the transparency and accountability piece is really important when we think about other countries using them, particularly other countries that may not already have kind of a baseline of transparency, similar to how the United States tends to treat uh, military operations. Not to say we're perfect, but we're certainly um, far more transparent than, say, China or Russia. Um, so it is an important piece for um, maintaining some accountability with the 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 uh, the striking nations public uh, on whose uh, behalf the force is being used, as well as, as I mentioned at the outset, uh, the host nation uh, where the, the force is being used, and particularly the local populations around there. I think I think that the one of the important things that, so we have a long ways to go on transparency, and I think that that transparency only further um, sets an example in that space to the extent we can get to the ideal. Uh, I think having a very solid framework on civilian protection is also really important. The tricky piece here is that part of the reason that we're so, we've become very good at preventing civilian casualties is because our technology is very good and also our, our, our professionals who do these operations are just extraordinary. And so there's a lot of kind of art and science of this. And I do worry sometimes when we talk about civilian protection that when we're sort of preaching the the U.S. way of civilian protection, that, that that's not always an achievable level of uh, of discrimination and precision when we're looking at some less developed countries that may have terrorist threats in their borders, and this may be a more discriminate approach than, say, putting ground troops in, um, but they still may not be able to reach our levels. But nonetheless, I do think having at least some solid framework and agreement on principles of civilian protection is important. The final piece I would say here is that you know, really being clear about our domestic and international legal basis is, I think, really important. And I think the Obama administration did very well in articulating that. I think that the challenge is on the on the domestic legal basis, we're still, as Lauren pointed out, relying on the 2001 authorization for the use of military force, which has been further interpreted to not just account for al-Qaeda and its associated forces, so groups like al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, but also ISIS, which has had a you know public split with al-Qaeda, but under uh, the legal analysis uh, is kind of a successor organization, and, and so is, is still covered by the 2001 AUMF. Um, and to the extent that we're not freshening that and we're not making the the congressional authorization appropriate to the current threat we face, I worry that that is maybe not setting the best example for other countries who might use, um, you know, an, an aging piece of legislation to justify a range of, of use of force. On the international legal basis, you know, part of the disagreements you get into in this space, and particularly when you read U.S. government accounts of uh, the international legal basis versus the, the criticisms lodged by outside groups is that the U.S. government relies on 
and I'm going to mangle some of this because I'm not a lawyer, but I'll do my best. The U.S. government relies on the, the law of war, uh, and particularly the concepts of um, you know proportionality and discrimination. Um, but it assumes a war mindset, a war framework, and so everything that we're doing in places like Yemen and Somalia is is on its face significantly higher than anything that the laws of war require. There are others who say if we're using um, drones for strikes outside of um, kind of declared war zones, that we ought to uh, apply international human rights law, which is a significantly higher standard and requires a far higher kind of exhaustion of possibilities before lethal action is taken and, and a far higher standard for being able to uh, to target somebody in the first place. Um, and uh, and I worry that the, the kind of continued debate about which of those frameworks is important um, leads us a little bit talking past each other at times. I think that's a, that's a key point, Luke, is sort of whether you come at this issue from a law of war framework or a criminal law framework has a huge implication for sort of how you then view the legality of these actions. I think the thing that strikes me when I go overseas and talk to audiences, even in, in Europe and get into conversations, even with, say, close U.S. Um, allies, is, you know, that... The, the discussion that I'll hear in Washington among people in government or think tanks or the sort of Washington bobbleheads like us is, you know, well, the Obama administration laid out sort of its legal and policy framework and it's lawful and it's conducted in accordance with international humanitarian law or the laws of war. But overseas, I often see others take a very different perception, right? And the perception is simply, well, what the U.S. is doing is illegal. And it, it, it must be violating international law because that's why they're being secretive about it and they're not telling us, right? And there seems to be this linkage between secrecy and the perception of illegitimacy or illegality. And that worries me not only because it then affects the perceived legitimacy of U.S. actions, because I also worry then about the precedent it sets for what other countries might do. If there's a perception that somehow, oh, the rules don't apply to drones. If I use drones for whatever reason, the laws don't apply, and I can then kind of go outside the bounds of law, um, which I don't think is what the U.S. is doing, but that perception could be certainly harmful as others get access to them. Yeah, that's something that I have wanted to ask policymakers going back to the Bush administration is if, well, two questions. If you could not be secret about the use of drones. It was not possible from a legal standpoint or just from like any other standpoint. Would you still employ them in the same way? Or if you couldn't use drones, you had no access to them whatsoever and you only had other capabilities, what would you do instead? And I think those having those conversations more publicly and both of which may lead back to using drones for these sorts of missions makes a lot of sense, um, would give a lot more credibility and credence to how U.S. policy for drone use has worked over the last couple of decades because you'd have to talk through the here's what the you know it's it's less the secrecy than matters and more the, the efficacy of the platform and the effectiveness of it um i think in many ways our uh um our legal authorities have constrained us from having conversations with both our international partners and the american people that might be much more useful in terms of how we use force that's a great question, actually. We could apply to almost any government activity. Uh, if you're in government, ask yourself, well, if I couldn't make the secret, would I still do it? We'll call that the de young Shulman rule. Um, remember that in the future. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's a great point for going forward. I mean, look, there's a lot of reasons that we got ourselves into a place where we um, are not able to be as transparent as we could be about uh, about drone strikes. Um, and some of those, again, we, we saw through some hard work that you could get past some of that and, you know, 
was certainly the 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 case of Somalia is is illustrative to be able to go from uh, not talking about drone strikes to being able to talk about them quite frequently um, uh, and on a specific strike by strike basis. Same same for Yemen. The, the, the challenge on some of this is that, um, you know, the, the aspects of the drone program that remain secret um, are secret for a reason. And uh, and the, one of the frustrations, I think, on this is that as you try to make, you know, the president is ultimately the, the foremost classification authority, right? But, uh, but he can't just, you know, he can't just arbitrarily say, well, this is going to be disclosed and this is not. Because at any given time, there's a number of other things that, um, you know, you have, he has to, to think through and his staff has to think through, if I make this category of information public, then all these other categories of information that I'm insisting are classified, one might argue, and if one had good litigators, one might bring those litigators to argue that those things ought to be made public as well. And suddenly you've kind of, you know, a friend of mine described this as sort of like um, a large dam and there are a number of holes and any given next hole could be the one that kind of brings the dam through. I think that's a little bit dramatic, but you kind of, you kind of get the, it's a, it's a nice visual for, uh, for thinking about this. So the the work of declassification is this incredibly painful work where you're going through and really drilling down to the root of why it's classified, what other types of things are, are classified um, that are similar to this, that if we um, disclose this, one can make a good case that those things ought to be disclosed. And and that doesn't happen because, you know, as, 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 as we've talked about, the intelligence community is, is so good about keeping things secret or tend to be good about keeping things secret. The idea of making an active push towards transparency is not something that the military intelligence community are, are always committed to. And so it requires commitment from the top. It was something that President Obama cared a lot about. I can't imagine, unless this administration becomes very focused on transparency, that they will have kind of the patience for the long process of working through declassification. And I think that's unfortunate because I do think we need to be to a, get to a better place on this. Yeah, no, other than uh, willy-nilly giving secrets to the Russians, it's not clear that the administration is very focused on transparency. Um, I mean, but it's a good point, right? Because I, I often wonder, I mean, it's a side point, but I often wonder if, if some of the things that President Trump has has disclosed and others in his administration may have disclosed um, will come back to bite them down the road with somebody saying, well, you disclosed this, we had to also release X, Y, and Z information. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's a really valuable point about thinking about um, releasability that I would imagine most people don't, you know, just aren't aware of or don't think about. So, I mean, so what are the prospects going forward for greater transparency? What could be done further? Uh, what are the limits? And, and what, if anything, do you think we'll actually see out of this administration? So, um, so grading this administration so far in transparency um, is—it's just—it's an incomplete, right? I mean, the CENTCOM has continued, and again, this is sort of outside of our specific drone framework. But announcing their strikes in Iraq and Syria, uh, they have also announced uh, Yemen strikes, although in kind of batches. So they did this series of, I think, eighty strikes in March and April, and they were kind of announced as in the last, you know, couple weeks we did this number of strikes. So it's not that same kind of fidelity of strike by strike, but it's still useful to to know that information. Um, the the uh, pr uh, procedure of announcing strike by strike in Somalia appears to still be in place. So it's really early to say, and you know, and the civilian casualty numbers for this administration appear to be up, but a lot of that is because, you know, when you look at Iraq and Syria, which kind of get rolled into this discussion, we're in the middle of, you know, urban combat in, um, in those locations. Um, and then for Yemen, a lot of it comes back to that, uh, that raid that did not go well and resulted in civilians being killed in the crossfire. So it's really 
really early to say, I think, um, how well this administration is, is doing on transparency. I don't think you're going to see President Trump giving a major legal and policy address on the merits of transparency. I don't think that's kind of disposition-wise where um, where he comes from. But I do think that you know the 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 um, the gold standard on this, what we ought to be seeking. And where where we've, we've still fallen short is to be able to announce every single strike, with maybe rare exceptions, um, every every strike that the U.S. government takes. Um, you don't need to be able to say, in all cases, the specific target or why it was taken, which can get into sources and methods. But at a minimum, where that is acknowledging the strike was taken, and this is the um, uh, the military's assessment of uh, combatants and non-combatants killed in the operation. So thinking through uh, some of the personalities involved to try to guess at what their calculus may be. So, uh, you know, Trump, uh, President Trump during his campaign talked a lot about how you know, military secrecy was actually quite important to him and he didn't understand why we're so transparent about both our uh, saber rattling but also our, our follow-up to any operation. It's difficult to say whether or not that's a consistent position on his part, but at least in, in some ways he is less an advocate of transparency and others he is... Um, I think fair to say more of an advocate, perhaps by accident, of transparency. Um, General or Secretary Mattis uh, is—it's interesting. Like you can see him when he's talking about civilian casualties from his Secretary of Defense part. He's doing so very much in the manner of a senior military commander, where he's absolutely right that the uh, Department of Defense, the United States military, does more than anyone in the world to prevent and limit civilian casualties. Uh, but at the same time, the U.S. military, understandably, does not have to explain itself really further. That's really more of a policy role. And Secretary Mattis has not, in his public discussions, had broader discussion about, like, all right, so I, I understand that you're seeing more civilian casualties. Here's what this means. It's been more of a limited conversation, uh, though it's expanded a bit over time. Um, Pompeo at CIA, uh, just thinking about his prior roles in Congress, uh, he may see the utility of um, not wanting to give the missions of his agency broader or more significant oversight in Congress. He's got a pretty good deal right now. Uh, I had a friend point out to me the other day that there's not like a John McCain of drone strikes, or at least not very publicly. So, uh, you know, it's, it's very much within his incentives to keep things the way they are. And then lastly, McMaster, and this is a really broad assumption, um, some of the McMaster's philosophy comes back to the importance of consolidating gains in military campaigns. So you're not just executing a fire and forget, you're actually uh, conducting a mission and doing the follow-up necessary to make sure that whatever gains you achieved are actually locked in for the for yourself and the local population. And it would seem to me that he would, I would guess, that he'd find drone strikes to be something that are not terribly useful in consolidating gains unto themselves, and that transparency may be a necessary factor in increasing that consolidation of gains. Problem with all of those is that all of these guys have a lot more on their plate than this. So, we'll see. Can I make one additional brief point on this, mm -hmm. uh, which is I think one of the things that was really valuable in, in the Obama administration was that we uh, we spent so much time uh, meeting with outside groups that were tracking civilian casualties and were tracking and, and monitoring our, our drone uh, strikes. And that was mostly human rights groups, but also, you know, the Stimson Center did this uh, remarkable task force led by uh, uh, General Abizade um, and Rosa Brooks uh, that looked into and evaluated our overall drone strategy. And 
having been on the government side of those meetings, um, they were often uncomfortable in that there was very little we could say in response to some of the specific uh, cases that they made. But the the research that some of these groups do is just really meticulous and, yeah. and I think brings a very interesting perspective into how you assess um, uh, the, the civilian casualties uh, and the combatant casualties and the overall impact uh, of drone strikes. And I think it was really important to, to hold those meetings. I don't know how much of that's going on now in the new administration, but it was a it was an important outside check on this. You, you could imagine a more ideal world where there was a uh, a greater ability of the U.S. government to uh, engage in some of the specific strikes that they focus in on as problematic and be able to have a dialogue that perhaps uh, it, it produces a greater um, uh, level of truth as to the true outcome of those actions. Well, it sounds like we may be transitioning perhaps back to a world where most of the transparency we get about U.S. operations comes from some of these outside groups then. Yeah, I think it could be. And again, it's, it's a pretty robust infrastructure. I mean, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, Human Rights First, Open Societies all have pretty robust uh, drone tracking uh, programs in some way. Um, my uh, organization, New America, has a uh, comprehensive strike tracker. The Bureau of Investigative Journalism of the UK has theirs, um, Long War Journal. So there's a pretty robust community of groups that are tracking this. But again, it's, it's essentially outside accounts that go, um, you know, sometimes, you you know, you heard the Obama administration frequently refer to wide gaps as the quote between uh, U.S. government assessments and those of outside groups, but there's never a specific kind of litigation of the specific points. And I think that's, um, I think it would be ideal to be able to have some greater dialogue on this uh, going forward. Well, listen, um, thanks, uh, Luke and Lauren, for coming in. It's been a fascinating discussion, and um, maybe we'll get uh, President Trump tweeting about drone strikes. I'm not sure if that would be constructive or not in this context, but um, uh, this has been really, really helpful. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me.